Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Joe Bro Radio, the greatest nerd and pop culture podcast on the internet. It's our brand new Sunday episode with our very first guest. But before we get into that, I'd be, as usual, joined by Neil Rosano. Say hello. Hello. All right, Melinda, say hello. Howdy. All right, Groovy. Fantastic intros today. All right. Go ahead and stop that for now. Okay, so before we usually get into things, uh, we're just going to jump right into it today. Uh, Melinda, we like to start with small talk, right? And I'll let you go first this time since you're the guest. I'm great at small talk. That's fine. All right, you got anything to share? Well, um, thanks for putting me on the spot there, buddy. Um, You're welcome. It's been it's been a good Sunday. It's been a crazy Sunday. Um, I'm totally sitting in my vehicle uh, right next to a, a gynecology clinic, just for anybody who was interested, uh, just because it was the most convenient place to park. I didn't know we um, had one of those here. <laughs> I mean, those are kind of necessary anywhere that there's females, but I don't know if you knew that, but it's true. Women aren't yeah. real. Fair. They they are they are, and unfortunately, we need special doctors. So you know. Neo, just because you've never talked to one doesn't mean they, they're not real. And you have? Right, moving on. So, uh, how about you, Neo? What do you got to share? Anything crazy happened this week? Uh, Yeah, my cat ran off. Oh? Yeah, we That's can't so find fun. her. Wait, you, we, you still don't have her back? No, we think she's just gone for good, and that's kind of sad. Oh. Oh, that's a shame. Yeah. That hurts my heart. Well, Me too. Ho- hopefully she listens to this podcast and knows that you want her back. Yeah. Lex, if you're out there, listen to this podcast. Uh, come back to us, please. Thank you. That, Sing that... that Kelly Clarkson song. And I need you. And I miss you. <laughs> All right. Well, I don't. I guess I don't necessarily have much in the way of small talk. I applied for a new job. I actually go into training next week. Uh, what? Yeah, yeah. I've there. There's a story that I was gonna tell you later because you actually kind of need to know about it. <laughs> it's not really something I want to discuss on the boring. podcast, but it, it's it's kind of a. <laughs> I have a bit of a very cluttered week ahead. Yeah, they they want me to do twenty cool. hours of training, and then I have to do all the CNA training as well because it's in healthcare. Oh my gosh. Yeah. There's a I get paid for all of those, so you know, it's whatever. Um Well that's good. Yeah, yeah, I would I would hope so. But anyway, that that's pretty much all I got other than I've been playing Overwatch two with Neo and living off of the biggest power trips of my life. Yep. Masochist sim <laughs> Masochist Simulator two point Yeah. Anyway, so for days to, to bleh, today's topic uh, I wanted to keep this secret, and now is the time for it to not be secret. Uh, if anyone's oh. ever heard about Wheel of Time, right? It's a uh, is fantasy, old fantasy story, right? Written, right? Book series, yeah. Uh, and there is also a show on Amazon that we are not going to talk about, except for a little bit at the end. But Melinda knows just about everything there is to know about it. So we're going to go ahead and just 
we're going to give you the ball, Melinda. You're going to tell us what you like about it. You know, what, you know, some of the story, whatever you're willing to share. Don't worry about spoilers or anything like that. Um, we'll ask you some sure. questions that come along the way. Uh, this is this is just a you episode. We want to hear what you have to say. You want to hear what I have to say? Yeah. That's the nicest thing anyone's ever said to me. Oh. <laughs> I'm, uh, so... The Wheel of Time is a um, it's a fourteen book long epic fantasy series, and um, I mean no lie, I've read this I've read this whole thing from start to finish three times. I love it so much. I literally just finished reading it my third time a couple weeks back, and I very strongly consider just starting it over again. But I'm making myself read something else. But mm. um, it's it's unique. It's very unique in um, in its characters, in the actual plot and storyline, because it's just so vast and extensive. And that's one thing that I like about it. Totally understand. There's a lot of people who, you know, just kind of they commit to one character, and that's the only character that they want to like follow or or you know read about. But the thing is, with Wheel of Time, you've got to be prepared to follow the storylines of a bunch of different people and Robert Jordan does an excellent job of hopping between all these different characters and just weaving this really cool epic story because it's essentially from start to finish you follow all these different people all these different things that are happening in in different parts of the world and it all coalesces and comes together in like the most epic possible way in the last book so well done uh, so that's one of the things I like about it. Sorry. Oh, I was uh, right. I was looking at like some spark notes on Wheel of Time and Gage. I found something that you might find really interesting. Oh, yeah. Apparently, the author began writing the first volume, The Eye of the World, in 1984. Nice. Mm -hmm. Good year. Good year. George Orwell really left a bad taste for that number in my mouth. But uh, reasonably so. <laughs> Anyway, uh, so I I know a little bit about it. I I watched the show, um, and I'm sorry. Now now I didn't read I didn't read the books yet, uh, but I watched the show. And even though I didn't read the books, it the show irritated me just because I respect the source material, and I because of Dad and Melinda now know everything that's wrong with that show. But you know, <laughs> we're we're still gonna shove that into the back of the closet for now. Uh, tell us about, uh, I guess you could say the factions. Um, I know that there's the Aes Sedai, I believe is how you say it. Yes. So the Aes Sedai is, is pro is the prevalent, um, power presence in, in Robert Jordan's world. Um, and this is another kind of unique thing about it. Like there's, you know, a lot of people kind of don't, there, there's a magical feel to it, but it's not called magic. It's called the one power. You know, there's, it's not magic in a, you know, traditional like Harry Potter or even like Lord of the Rings kind of way. It's, um, the, there's a prevailing theme all throughout Wheel of Time of like weaving. Like they always say the wheel weaves is the wheel wills, which is just like, hey, what's going to happen is going to happen. So like weaving is a common theme in in this book, like weaving a, t like tapestry kind of weaving. Um, so the Aes Sedai 
are it's all it's all female you know they're an all female group and they weave the one power they can wield this one power and you know essentially use this quote unquote source of magic um they can tap into that source cuz not everybody can some people are inborn with the talent like a very 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 few people who are naturally born with the ability to reach it and some people a little bit of a larger group but not by much, can learn to find it, to wield it, and whatnot. So the Aes Sedai pretty much have, uh, like, the one power, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, they're the only ones that can use it. So these women will search for other women who can use it, and they take them to the White Tower, which is their power center in a town called, called Tarvalin. And if women are, you know, strong enough to become Aes Sedai or dedicated enough because it's a very rigorous training process, then they, they become Aes Sedai. And if they don't, they just teach you enough to where you're not going to kill yourself. And then they put these women out of the tower and say, don't touch the source because that's ours, you know. Um, so that's the, the primary power. You know, Aes Sedai, they don't have their own country or anything. They just have their own city in Tarvalin. But the Aes Sedai are known for being the primary I guess, political power, you know? So, like, kings and queens will have, like, an Aes Sedai advisor. If they did, it's very prestigious. Or, But, you know, nobody really wants to mess with them because they're known to be very... Uh, they they work towards their own ends. Um, there's a set of rules that they have to follow. Like, they can't, they can't lie, or they, they can speak no word that is not true. Uh, they can not use the one power to harm anyone except for in defense of themselves or defense of their other sisters, which, you know, that's what the Aes Sedai call themselves. And uh, they can't make weapons. They can't forge weapons with the one power. So mm -hmm. they they bind the, themselves with these rules. That way people are willing to work with them. But even still, people are not trusting because they, you know, something they say a lot in the books is, you know, the truth in Aes Sedai speaks may not be the truth that you hear. You know, they dance around words a lot. So that's kind of a feel for the Aes Sedai and what they do and how people view them. They're, they're trusted to a certain extent, but people are very sketchy and, and afraid of them, you know, for the most part. Right. <laughs> Excuse me. What does so, uh, Aes Sedai mean? Or like, what, what's the meaning behind the name? So the word Aes Sedai is, uh, it's like from the old tongue, you know, in the story, there's like, if you read the story, there's a, you know, they speak, I guess, whatever the common language is, but, oh, excuse me, sorry guys, I'm burping up my, uh, my caffeine here. No uh, worries. But Aes Sedai is, a... what'd you say? I said, no worries, you do your thing. Oh, cool. Um, but anyway, so there's the old tongue, you know, they, they're, this is, gosh, it's so extensive, um, Long story short, there is a language that used to exist called the Old Tongue, and Aes Sedai is, I believe, if I remember this correctly, I'm having to dig here, it means servant of all, or servants of all. <clears throat> so basically, the Aes Sedai was a group that was originally founded to serve, to be servants of, you know, the people. And, uh, that's the way it was. I mean, in the story, you know, during the time frame where it takes place, the Aes Sedai have been established for <clears throat> over 3,000 years um, since what they call the time of the breaking 
which is right. when one of the primary figures that you hear about, the Luce Theron Telemann, the Kinslayer, um, he went nuts and destroyed the world. <laughs> and uh, he was an Aes Sedai. So that's another reason why there's some stigma associated with the Aes Sedai, because, you know, it's been thousands of years, so they don't know the details, but they know that they had something to do with breaking the world. Like them messing with the one power caused the breaking, and that caused a whole heck of a lot of problems. It basically put them back into the Stone Age. Right. So, uh, Does that make amongst, sense? yeah, amongst the Aes Sedai, there's, uh, there's, there's sex, I believe, or sex. Uh, there's the red, the blues, yeah. the greens, and all yellows, all that. Uh, tell us about those. Yes. So they're called Ajas. You know, the, the, that's the name of the S-E-C-T-S sects. Um, yeah. <clears throat> there's seven Ajas. There's the, um, the blue, the red, the green, the yellow, the white, the gray, and the brown. And uh, each Aja kind of has their own, like, What's the word I'm looking for? They they specialize in in something specific, or they have a um man. I can't words today. This Sunday has not been kind to my brain. Yeah, there's um, like, there's like a, a a personality type that's kind of associated with them. At least that's what I picked up. I mean, like uh, like the lantern. There is a personality type. I mean, sort of. It's more like. Let, let me explain it this way. There's something that each Aja is dedicated to doing. They dedicate their lives towards something. And depending on what that something is, you know, that, that Aja will draw certain personality types, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so your Browns, your Brown Ajas are going to be your scholars. Like they are dedicated to putting history or recording history and recording science and record it basically sharing like gathering information for the purpose of sharing it and making sure that it's there for the next generation right so mm -hmm. the brown aja is gonna draw your no you know nerdy bookworm type people <clears throat> and um the yellow aja they're healers like the yellow aja they all specialize in healing weaves and being able to heal the human body and the human mind and whatnot so, you know, anybody who's really interested in, in healing and helping people, they go to the Yellow Aja. Um, let's see here. The These ones, let's see, white and gray, they're not super, like, there are characters from the white and the gray that are in it, but it's, it's not super prevalent because, like, the gray Aja is all about diplomacy. So those are, the gray Aja is typically, like, your ambassadors, your people who are going to go to help negotiate treaties and stuff like that. The whites are all about logic, so they just kind of sit in the white tower and, you know, think highly of themselves and uh, mm -hmm. discuss what's logical. And that was my uh, impression anyway. Um, the the three primary ones that you see a lot of in the Wheel of Time is the greens, the blues, and the reds. The first Aes Sedai that you come across, Moraine, um, super cool character. And you don't really know what to think of her right at the get-go because... You know, she's steeped in mystery because she's nice to die and nobody ever, you know, knows a whole lot about them. But she's of the Blue Aja, which the Blue Aja, like, they go after causes. So, without spoiling too much, 
Moraine, she went to the blue because her cause was to find and help cultivate the dragon reborn. You know, help help him, help guide him into his role, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, the Amerlin seat that is in power at the time in the of the first book is also, you know, the Amerlin seat is the leader. Let me explain that first. I didn't say that. The Amerlin seat is the leader of the Aes Sedai. She's supposed to be of all Ajas and none, but she's raised from an Aja. So she was formerly Blue Aja, and her and Moraine are kind of in cahoots. Basically the same thing, trying to find the Dragon Reborn, and when they do, get him to where he can do his thing, right? Right. The Greens are the Battle Aja, so, you know, they're all about basically being badasses, um, and they typically will have warders. I don't know if you want me to get into warders yet, but I totally can at this point, or I can sidebar it. Uh, we'll I'll, we'll get to that. I, I was actually going to ask about that. I just forgot the word, but we'll we'll stuff it aside just for a minute. Okay, sidebarring that, then going to skip over the greens because warders have a lot to do with that. And then there's the red Aja, which the red Aja is dedicated toward to basically hunting down and stealing any men who can channel. Uh, yeah. during at this point in time when the book is taking place there are men who can tap the true source but the thing is the the male side of the true source is tainted so the one power there's the there's sidar which is you know the quote-unquote female side that the women can tap into and there's sidine which is the male source that men can tap into when lose there and kinslayer um when he sealed away the dark one thousands and thousands of years ago the dark one did a counter strike against the people which was all men uh who sealed him up and tainted the male half of the true source so the more a man channels the more crazy he becomes basically because he's having to reach through the essence of you know evil to get to the their side of the true source so because of that they're dangerous you know they that's why they destroyed the world thousands of years ago during the breaking because all these male channelers continued to channel and they all went nuts. And uh, so the the Red Aja is dedicated towards hunting down men who can channel and stilling them, basically cutting them off from the true source so they can't do that anymore. Hmm. Uh, all right. Well, that was pretty good. Yeah, the, I, I, I picked up that the Red Aes Sedai are pretty much just a, a bunch of man-haters. They kind of are, you know, and there are exceptions. Like one of my favorite characters, she doesn't come in until later, but she's Red Aja. Not all of them are man-hating, you know, rage women, but a lot of them are. (laughs) Right. All right. Well, uh, you mentioned warders with the the green Aes Sedai. And I I wanted, like I said earlier, I wanted to ask about warders before, and I I forgot that was their name. So go go ahead and tell us about those guys. Sure. So warders are are super cool. They um and not just green Aja has warders. Any Aes Sedai can have a warder. Red Aja do not. Like there is not one. There's not one red Aja Aes Sedai who has a warder because you know they it tends to draw the women who don't trust men. Mostly, if if an Aes Sedai has a warder, they have one. You know that that's generally the way that it works. The green Aes Sedai are the exception. You know, green Aes Sedai will typically take multiple warders because 
they're the Battleaja, and warders are intended to watch their Aes Sedai's back. So there's kind of a... The, the way that it works, Aes Sedai put this weave on their warders, and it kind of creates this symbiotic relationship between the two of them. He can sense her feelings and emotions and pain, uh, and vice versa. She can do the same for him. And that that gives the warder, like this weave, this symbiotic relationship, gives this gives the warder the ability to basically kind of be a superhuman. Like they they are much faster, much stronger. They don't need hardly any sleep. Um, they are they're basically like super super superhuman dudes that are their sole purpose is to protect their eyes to die. You know, and uh, you know looking at it from the outside point of view, like Aes Sedai can, if an Aes Sedai is walking alone, typically she doesn't have to worry. Like if somebody tried to run up and stab her, she's going to wrap them up in weaves of air and, you know, spank them. Like, however, Aes Sedai are not infallible. And that's something that kind of, you kind of see as things go along. Like an Aes Sedai is still a human. They can die. So that's the point of having a warder is, you know, when you when you can't watch your own back, you know, if 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 she's focused on doing something really important, the warder is watching everything else to make sure that she can do what she needs to do. Right. Uh. So. Excuse me. As far as warders go, uh, I the only one that I know is Lan. Uh, tell us right. about Lan. And then we'll we'll. He is I'll the coolest of warders. Okay. Cool. Well, I love Lan. He is the coolest of warders. And uh, so Lan is Moraine, which, like, you know, I know you know, but for anybody who's listening that doesn't know the Wheel of Time, Moraine is the first Aes Sedai that you meet, and Lan is her warder. Uh, and it's funny because Moraine is this teeny tiny little, little, like, slip of a woman, and Lan is this giant, like, I always picture him as, like, a, like a Native American dude who's just, like, big broad shoulders stony like scary face but he's got like icy blue eyes and uh lan you don't of course you don't know this right off the bat of course you see him like you get to experience him fight in the story and whatnot but you don't really realize how badass he is until you get like to the white tower and see other Aes Sedai and other warders he is highly respected and he's well known amongst all of the Aes Sedai and all of the warders and beyond just because of his prowess. He's truly, like, warders are bad mamajamas. They're all awesome, all highly deadly. Lanley is the deadliest of them all. Um, and Lan, a little bit of his backstory, it's interesting because he joins up with Moraine, pulling himself away from a cause that he was pursuing. So Lan is a, what's called a borderlander in the, you know, the world of, of, uh, oh goodness, what do they call it? I guess the, I can't, I can't really remember the name of the continent, but you know, the continent where all of this takes place, the borderlands, yeah. uh, border the, the, uh, line between, you know, civilized land and the blight, which is where all the scary shit is. Um, uh, and his, country he was the king or i'm sorry he was a he was actually a baby when this happened but his father was the king of this country called malkier the blight basically overran it destroyed it you know so malkier no longer exists so land has always been 
hell-bent on like going and being a one-man army and avenging his fallen land and moraine pulls him away from that to be his warder or to be her ward warder and pursue this quest for you know fighting the dragon reborn so right any Uh, any other details you want i have a lot but i don't want to spend too much time on it uh well i was actually gonna at this point uh so in 14 books i imagine the the story kind of uh changes uh, like substantially a Uh, lot but so for the first, I would I I guess maybe the first book or two, tell us about the the start of the story. Give us the rundown. You know, uh, what who's doing what. You can give us the details of the characters as well. Uh, just you, you tell us about the story basically. Sure. Okay. So in Eye of the World, um, it starts off in, uh, well, really it starts off with just a little picture of what happened in the breaking. So, cause every, all, everything that happened three years before or 3000 years before during the age of legends is what they called it. When they were super high technology, they can do amazing things with the one power. Um, just a really cool time to be alive, you know, <clears throat> but that's when the dark one broke loose and they had to reseal the dark one. Like I mentioned that, Lou mm-hmm. Theron brought this plan to the Aes Sedai, which at this time was co-ed. It was male and female. The all the women in the in the group said, "Sorry, your uh, your plan is too reckless, and we just don't want any part of it." So Lou Theron gathered the hundred most powerful men and went to go seal the Dark One away. And that's when the Dark One tainted Sidine, right? So right. they all go crazy. Luz Theron basically kills his whole family and destroys the world uh, because he snapped out of it, saw what he did, and was like, okay, I don't want to be here anymore. And he was the most powerful male channeler, so he basically made the Earth uh, completely reform. So much power he released whenever he uh, committed suicide, basically. Um, So fast forward 3,000 years later, it goes to the Two Rivers, which is... uh, uh, tiny little town on the outskirts of Andor, like, it's so remote that they don't even know that they're part of this country called Andor. And your three main characters, or your, I should say your three primary main characters, because there's so many, um, are three young men who are all of the same age, uh, Matt, Perrin, and Rand. They're all probably about 16 years old at the time, and, uh, you know, Rand is a sheep herder, you know, with his father, his mother died years and years ago, so it's just the two of them. Uh, Perrin is a uh, is a blacksmith's apprentice, and he lives in the town of Emmonsfield with his master, with his uh, you know, blacksmith master that he's apprenticing under. And his parents live on the outskirts of town. Mm-hmm. And then Matt is just kind of the town troublemaker. You know, he's he's the one who goes and uh, captures badgers and releases them in the middle of a group of girls on the village green. Um, So there's these three boys. They basically grew up together. They're best friends. Um, They're all very different in personality. Um, You know, like Matt's the troublemaker. Perrin's the kind of strong, silent type, you know, real solemn. He's a big, burly dude, so he moves slow and and speaks slow because he doesn't want to hurt anybody physically or, or emotionally. And then there's Rand, who's kind of a little bit of both. He's he's the more 
he's the more complex character in like how he feels and acts and what his motives are. Um, so these three boys, they're there, they're doing their thing, being being village boys. And one day, um, Moraine, who is an Aes Sedai, shows up in town and they don't know it. They just see that this, you know, teeny tiny, beautiful, well-dressed lady walking around and they've never seen a lady before. Or they're like, oh my gosh, that must be a noble. I've never seen a noble before. And, uh, and you know, they see Lan walking around with her, this big, giant, you know, mountain of a man. And they find out that she's an Aes Sedai, right? Fast forward, you know, uh, uh, people kind of find out that she's an Aes Sedai and the word gets around. A couple other characters get introduced, like Tom Marilyn, who's really cool. He's a gleeman, which basically means he's a bard. He tells stories and plays music and juggles and does cool stuff. Uh, but going going past all that, just because, like I said, there's a lot in there, uh, the Two Rivers gets attacked by these these beasts, the what, which are called Trollocs. These are the primary, you know, run-of-the-mill monsters of this world. And initially, uh, you see them by just looking at Rand, a night at, with Rand and his father, Tamel Thor. They're out on their little farm that's several miles from town, sitting down, getting ready to have dinner. And all of these Trollocs bust through the doors. They've never seen him before, except, you know, Tam seems to know what he's doing. Rand, you know, you're kind of listening to the story from his perspective. And he's like, "What? how does he know what to do? He's never... He's, he's, my dad's just a sheep herder, but Tam expertly tells him what to do, you know, gets him out of the house, is able to lead the Trollocs away. He goes and pulls this old sword from his room and shoves it into Rand's hands and says, you know, run, basically, you know, go, go help yourself. So they're able to, to figure out that situation, but Tam's been hurt and uh, Trollocs have a poison on their, on their blades. Even one little cut will make make you gravely ill and will kill you if you don't get it treated. So Rand in escaping finally finds his father in the middle of the woods, basically half dead. So he has to carry his dad into town, gets him there, see some weird, scary stuff on the way. There's some more Trollocs on the road looking for him. They see what's called a fade, um, which is another one of these monsters. They're typically in charge of Trollocs and they have no eyes. They're, they're scary, weird things. And uh, skipping over again, he gets him to Emmonsfield. Moraine heals him. And basically, Moraine, after all this happens, you know, she's been in town defending the town with the One Power. Because um, they there were several places that got attacked. There was Rand's farm, where Perrin's family lives, uh, the forge that he worked at, and Matt's house. So these three boys specifically were targeted. And uh, Moraine was able to dispatch, you know, the ones that attacked in, in town. And uh, after Moraine heals uh, his father, Tam, she basically comes to Rand and to each of the boys individually and says, look, they're three for a specific reason. I can't tell you too much, but we got to get you out of here. Um, so I need you guys to come with me. And of course, they're they're like, can't leave my family, blah, blah, blah. Long story short, Moraine 
talk some sense into him. There's a cool little scene where um, the uh, where the townsfolk actually are kind of riling up a mob to go after Moraine because they think she brought them there. You know, there's kind of that Aes Sedai superstition. And uh, she basically hands them their ass verbally and says, you guys should be ashamed of yourselves. This is ridiculous. And she kind of tells the story of where the people of Emmonsfield and the two rivers, like what their heritage is, which is the uh, line of Manetherin. You get to learn that later on. Like the people of Manetherin from like a thousand years ago were the the most badass of badass people. And they were known for their like iron will and stubbornness and, you know, just will to continue on. So these people in Emmonsfield get to learn like, oh, wow, that's where we come from. Makes sense. We're pretty sturdy, hardy folk, you know. <clears throat> After that scene, you know, Moraine kind of spirits them away. As they're fleeing, you know, they're trying to figure out what's going on. Um, a couple other people end up tag tagging along. Uh, Rand Althor, his uh, quote-unquote betrothed, Egwene, she, uh, she starts tagging along. Because she just happens to hear what's going on in the background. And she... She's one of those who's like, you're not going to leave me behind in this town. So she ends up coming along. Um, let's see, Rand, Perrin, Matt, Egwene. And then later on, uh, Nynaeve, who is the village wisdom, one of the most infuriating characters in the entire story. She's she's really kind of cool, like further on in the story. But in the first book, she's just she's just irritating and infuriating. But she chases after them. To, to bring them back. Basically, the, the town or village council sends her to find them and bring them home after they realize that they've disappeared. But she, that turns into her pursuing them and, like, joining their group. Um, so they... She actually doesn't join in until later. Sorry, hold on. Let me get my story straight here. Nope, she does meet up with them. So she, she meets up with the entire group and uh, at some point in time, they end up getting, they're pursued this entire time, you have to understand, by Trollocs. Like, Trollocs and Fades and, like, monsters are hunting them. So they're having to, like, keep moving to stay ahead of them. And uh, at some point in time, they've been cornered, and their only hope is to go this one particular direction that's going to take them straight to this old, abandoned, terrifying city called Shidar Logoth, which means in the old, old tongue, shadows waiting. And the backstory of this city is, is so terrifying and, and it's so well known that even Trollocs and Fades won't go in there. Like, they will not because they know that whatever is in there is nastier than they are and they don't want any part of it. But, so initially there's some bickering back and forth between Lynn and Moraine like, like this is a stupid idea but we have no choice. So they go to Shidar Logoth during the daytime completely empty they talk about this constant feeling of being watched of being um of of these invisible you know these invisible eyes that are following them everywhere from the windows of this uh of this old ruin they end up camping out for the night they find this this uh kind of empty but fairly large open building where they can bring the horses inside because outside at night is not a place you want to be. Like Shidar Logoth is not a place you want to be. Um, and at this point, 
Matt, being the little scoundrelly rascal that he is, says, this is our first time in a big city. Granted, it's a ruin, like there's no people here, but come on, this is cool. Let's go check it out, guys. So he convinces the boys, the other two boys, to go exploring with him. They find this old, big, domed, really cool-looking building, and uh, it just in the shadow of this building, they see this old, this bald little man randomly there. And of course, you know, three silly little teenage boys are like, oh, "Where are you here? You shouldn't be here." And uh, this guy, he calls himself Fred, and he basically says, "Hey, I'm uh, I I'm glad I found you. I'm actually a." Uh, a treasure hunter, and I have found this massive pile of treasure in here, and I really need some help carrying it out. Like, I'll totally give you some of it. I just really need some help moving this stuff. So they're like, oh, shoot, oh, okay, we can do that. Matt's eyes open up because he's a little bit of a, you know, I mean, he's a, he's a troublemaker, but he's also a little kind of uh, money greedy. This is where you start to see that little part of him. Uh, he's known as the gambler later on in the story. So this is kind of where his, uh, he finds his addiction for money. So they follow him down into this place, deep, deep into this building. Like at some point in time, there's no lights. And Perrin says, um, <laughs> we can't see Mr. Mordeth. And he's like, oh yeah, you guys need light, don't you? So he does something, and these, like, wall sconces light up in this giant room full of, like, piles of treasure and gold and stuff. And I, I've got to backtrack here a little bit, because whenever they were camping, and Moraine and Lan were warning these boys not to go anywhere or do anything stupid, one of the things they said is, don't touch anything. Like, if it, you know... There's not really anything to touch just because it's it's a ruin, you know, so everything like furniture, drapes, stuff like that's none of that exists because this this place is ancient. But one thing they said is do not pick up anything and take it with you from Shido Logoth. Don't touch it. So these boys, they're there. Mordeth starts acting a little weird and he looks kind of funny. And when Perrin starts questioning him about it, saying, um, I don't know about carrying this stuff out. I mean, Moraine told us that we shouldn't uh, that we shouldn't do anything. And uh, Mordeth asks, like, who's this Moraine? She doesn't sound very smart. And he, Perrin happens to mention that she's the Aes Sedai who's with us. When he, when they say that there's an Aes Sedai with him, he freaks out and basically turns into this weird shadow creature and flees, right? And mm -hmm. uh, scares the crap out of these boys. Um, so as they're, they're, they're fleeing, cause obviously now they're freaked out. They're like, we need to get the hell out of here and get back. Um, what they, what the other two, Rand and Perrin don't realize is Matt has grabbed an item. You know, he saw this really nice dagger with a, a golden hilt and a ruby the size of a pigeon's eggs, egg on the, on the butt. It's like, it caps the, the dagger. He's grabbed this and stowed it away just as a little, you know, he, in his mind, he's like, oh, you know, no harm. I can, I could probably fetch a pretty penny for this. I've never seen a rock so huge in my life. So he grabs it and takes it. And, uh, without letting anybody else know. So they make it back. Um, 
when they get there, only like Moraine and uh, the Gleeman who went with them, he actually fled with them as well. I forgot to mention that. And uh, Lan is out looking for them. He hasn't returned yet. And Moraine rips, rips them up one way and down another for for fleeing. And it's at this point where they start to hear like screeches and weird, creepy noises. And they're like, oh, shit, the Trollocs found us. And they have, against, you know, everything we knew about them, come into Shidar Logoth. Probably because they're being driven hard by something else. So then this whole chase scene ensues and they, they're having to flee Shidar Logoth. Not only dodging Trollocs, but dodging what's called Mashadar that starts coming out in the night. It's these, like, Mashadar is is the main thing that makes Shidar Logoth so terrifying. It's this mindless thing that becomes awake at night. The, you, the only way that you see it, like the way that it manifests, is these creeping white glowing tentacles and it's not even tentacles it's more like mist they're tentacles made of mist that kind of glows this eerie uh white color and they almost run in right run right into one of them but they were halted just in time to see some trollocs run into it and they died a horrible death and they're like well not touching that so they have to find another way to flee and through all this they all get separated um so perrin and Egwene end up fleeing together. You know, they're they're together as they get out of Shidar Logoth. Um, Matt and, uh, sorry, Rand. Matt and Rand are paired together. And uh, they get separated, but are, are still able to make it out uh, with each other. And then Moraine. Let's see, Moraine, Lan, and Nynaeve all end up fleeing together. Which is funny because Nynaeve and Moraine basically hate each other. More, Nynaeve hates Moraine and Moraine is just, you know, irritated by her presence. But, uh, and uh, Tom Marilyn also gets separated, but he ends up meeting up with Rand and Matt a little bit later on. So that's the point after Shidar Logoth where, you know, everything starts kind of branching off. And every like different things start happening in different places. Um, sorry, I've been talking for a long time. Am I still good? Yeah, no, you're good. You're you're fine. Okay, cool. So at this point, um, it 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 separates off, and they're all kind of doing their own thing. The highlights, you know, uh, Perrin and Egwene, they end up, you know, kind of out in this in this wilderness, and then weird stuff starts to happen. Like, Perrin starts to notice a lot of wolves. Um, and, you know, and they're, these these are, you know, small town villagers who live in the middle of these woods where they have to basically fight, fight wolves and bears and stuff off themselves to protect their livestock, right? So their initial, you know, reaction is like, oh, shit, wolves. Like, we, <laughs> we need to move. We need to go somewhere else. And in, uh, in their trek you know and they're the path that they're taking because they're trying to at this point in time they don't even know where to go they've never been this far from home so they're like well that's north and i'm pretty sure tarvalon's north so we're going that way and uh they end up meeting up with this mysterious man called elias who is basically this mountain man looking dude with a super long beard he's got like a fur hat and is wearing like buckskins and stuff 
and Elias has a bunch of wolves that are just kind of keeping keeping him company around a campfire. And uh, this is where you start to learn what what's special about Perrin himself. There's been little tidbits and stuff about what's special about Rand up until this point. Nothing blatant, which is why I haven't really brought in brought anything up relating that. But this is where you start to learn that Perrin is what's called a wolf brother which is basically a man who has the spirit of a man, but also has the spirit of a wolf. So um, Perrin starts to experience, he, he doesn't know what's happening at the time, but he starts to experience the, the emotions and the thoughts of wolves. And uh, Elias, you know, they just happen upon this man. He too is a wolf brother. So, it was just kind of, it's one of those things like the whole, the wheel weaves as the wheel wills, like all of these things are happening the way that they need to, because Elias is the one who kind of starts guiding Perrin in what he is and how to control it and how to, you know, come to terms with it, etc. Um, So they meet Elias and Elias tells him he's a wolf brother. Perrin's like, I don't, I don't know what the hell you're talking about, but I, that's not what I am. You're, you, you just got to be wrong. But these things keep happening. He keeps hearing their thoughts and feeling their emotions. And, you know, obviously this dude is just sitting around a campfire with, with wolves that are obviously not tame. They're, they look like hungry and like they'd be ready to eat them at any second. But they're just kind of sitting there hanging out with this dude. They carry on. Um, they, uh, as they're traveling, they come through this, it's called an, uh, an ogier steading. I don't want to get too much into Ogier right now just because that's another whole thing, but it's another uh, group of people that's in this, uh, in the story. They're basically large, large ogre-ish type people, but they're super nice and friendly and they cultivate wood like trees and, and groves and, and gardens and whatnot. And they live in what's called a steading. And in a steading, you can't touch the true source. So channelers, are kind of iffy about going in there because once they go in there, it's like they've lost the sense. Like they can't, they can't sense or touch or feel or use the true power. This particular Ogier steading is vacant. Like it's been, it's been abandoned for years and years. It's just this empty plains land where they come across these white cloaks. White cloaks are essentially like the, uh, the inquisition in this world um they're a bunch of uh holier than thou men who think that the one power is evil and that the Aes Sedai are witches and and you know tampering with with powers that were not meant to be played with and um and they're very I mean they're very much like the Inquisition it's it's one of those things like oh if you're walking in the light then then you're totally okay with us coming over and interrogating the ever-living crap out of you. And, oh, we're going to hand you over to our questioners, and they're they're going to question you hard with their sharp, pointy implements. And if, if, if you live in the light, you're going to be able to get through it and still be innocent. But, you know, that's not how it works, right? Mm-hmm. So that's the type of people these guys are. So they end up um, coming across this white cloak camp, but the wolves kind of give them some heads up, you know, through Elias, you know, the, these wolves are kind of traveling with them, but traveling on the periphery. So as not to freak out like Egwene and Perrin and, uh, through their like senses and through their alerts, 
they're like, oh, large group camp of people. We need to move around because we don't like people. And these people smell funny. Uh, they smell crazy. And um, so they camp one night thinking that they're safe, but there's a, uh, a patrol of white cloaks that end up getting a little bit too close. So they flee. And as they're hiding, you know, Perrin's kind of, because he's in a highly emotional state and freaking out a little bit, he uh, he starts kind of letting go a little bit and, and becoming more in tune with the wolves around him. And he's able to hear their thoughts and they're telling him to do things like, hey, don't go that way. There's, you know, you're going to come right across those white cloaks or, right, you know, right across these two legs as, as like a wolf would call them. And they end up getting cornered by this patrol, uh, Perrin, Egwene, and a couple wolves that are just kind of with them, shadowing them and making sure that they're okay. And uh, when these white cloaks get too close, you know, they're hollering at them saying, hey, you know, come out into the light, you know, surrender. Basically not, not saying, hey, we're not going to hurt you. Come on out. They're like, hey, you better get your asses out here. We're going to come in there and get you, and you're not going to like it. And they do that. They draw swords and everything. They start coming after, uh, coming into this little hiding place <coughs> that they found. And one of the wolves, whose name is Hopper, um, Hopper was the first wolf that Perrin, like, finally decided to kind of let himself be attuned to and communicate with him. He attacks this white cloak, and in doing so has basically drawn attacks from the other white cloaks so they kill hopper and this is where you learn that perrin has rage issues because he goes berserk he's got this axe that his master gave him and he just he he kills this motherfucker like dead like kills this white cloak this little guy's or this guy's never killed anybody in his life but he just he just loses it and uh so they end up subduing him and arresting him and taking Egwene as well and uh, imprisoning them in their white cloak camp. While that's happening, Rand and, pa or, uh, Rand and Matt are trying to find their way along to Camelin, which is another large city in, uh, in this world. So it's in, they're in the country of Andor, like the Two Rivers is on the far west side of Andor. Camelin is the is the capital city of Andor, and it's more towards the center, like east central part of Andor. So they're going to go over there because Moraine did at some point mention stopping in Camelin before they went to Tarvalon. So they're traveling along this uh, what's it's like a main trade road in um, in uh, in Andor. And at some point in time, they end up meeting up with Tom Marilyn. But as things are going along, Matt starts to act kind of different. He starts to get real paranoid. He starts getting real, like, aggressive. And, um, you know, they Matt or uh, Rand finally sees this dagger at some point. And he's like, where did you get that? Because, that, like, that's a, that's a fat rock on there. Like, we could sell that for food. And Matt's like, uh, absolutely not. You're not selling this. This is mine. You can't have it. He just starts getting really, like, just aggressive about it, and that's a side that has never, that's, that's just not part of Rand, of Matt's personality trait, so Rand's like, um, are you okay? Like, or, I mean, that's fine, we don't have to sell it, I won't touch it if you don't want me to. 
And, uh, and at that point, Matt kind of realizes that he snapped and he's like, oh, I'm sorry, you know, I'm just stressed out and I'm tired and blah, blah, blah. But then he, you know, sticks that knife back in his, you know, pocket where it can't be seen. And, you know, he's obviously safeguarding it. And it just, that continues to get like worse and worse as things go along. And Rand starts to de- just experience some weird things too. Whenever he's in these really stressful situations, something will happen and then they get out of this stressful situation. You know, there's a couple different circumstances of that happening. One of the main ones being uh, uh, at a town called Four Kings. They they get to this inn. And uh, bear in mind, too, of course, they are still, in be, still being pursued. Um, they, they've, they've had some situations up to this point where they've, they've seen Trollocs and have been able to kind of you know, dodge them, you know, make sure that they're not noticed or seen. They've been able to stay ahead of them. So they get to this Four Kings, and uh, for the first part of the story, Tom Marilyn, this bard dude, has been, uh, just for shits and giggles, basically teaching these boys how to play the flute and uh, teaching Matt how to juggle and, you know, do, do bard things, you know. So Rand actually has... Tom Marilyn's flute, so they decide that they're going to stop and they're going to, you know, try to play for their meal and for their room and board. And they do, but they walk, the immediately when they walk in, this uh, innkeeper is sketchy. For one thing, they, they note right away, every innkeeper that they've experienced up till this point has been round, like plump, and typically very happy and pleasant, and they're all fat, you know, because they're innkeepers. This one is real skinny and just kind of sketchy looking, a little oily, like oily hair and kind of a sour face. So immediately their their hackles are kind of up because they're like, innkeepers aren't supposed to be like that. Innkeepers are supposed to be fat and happy. That's not right. And uh, so they they still are like, well, let's just give it a shot. I mean, we we kind of need a place to sleep. And uh, here's as good a place as any as far as this town is concerned. This place just seems kind of sketchy. So they play, and uh, then the innkeeper, he grudgingly feeds them. And then he's like, well, I don't have an actual room for you guys, but I've got this, like, storage space in the back that I could probably put some pallets down in. And uh, so he takes them back there. And... uh, Instead of just the innkeeper guiding him back there, it's the innkeeper and his two thugs that he keeps by the door to basically bounce people out if they're getting rowdy. And Matt and Perrin, or, or Matt and Rand are like, hmm, that's kind of sketchy. So Rand is immediately like, okay, these guys are up to no good. He's immediately on alert. He's been wearing a sword on his hip, and he doesn't realize, or at least... He doesn't know why it's special, but everybody looks at that sword and they see this heron marked on it. He doesn't know what a heron marked blade is, but at this point he knows that people look at it and they're like, oh my gosh, that's a heron marked blade. You must be a badass. Um, So he's kind of trying to capitalize on that and he starts putting his hand on the sword and they get him to this room and uh, um, he turns around and looks at him and says, hey, thanks. You can see yourselves out. We'll, uh, We'll set up our own pallets from here. It's fine. And uh, the innkeeper kind of looks at him, glances at his sword, and says, All right, well, fine, we'll, we'll leave. Um, as soon as they leave, they close the door, barricade it, because they're, they're already sketched out. 
And uh, later on in the evening, you know, they don't sleep because they're they're nervous and, you know, kind of on edge. And good thing they didn't because, you know, they hear footsteps. And uh, if they hadn't barricaded the door, these dudes would have busted in and, you know, jumped on them. But they had to bust through this barricade. They're hollering at them to open the door. Essentially, you find out that uh, this guy's a dark friend. You know, the, the innkeeper is a uh, a person who is friends with the shadow, you know, so they, instead of following like the creator or like, you know, believing in the pattern, they follow the dark one and the dark one, whether he himself or, you know, by proxy using like a, one of his, one of his uh, chosen or one of the forsaken to speak to them or, uh, sometimes he'll send like a fade to deliver a message to these dark friends. Essentially, they've been given orders to capture these guys, right? So they they experience this guy. He's a dark friend. He's trying to uh, hold them there until somebody comes to get them. And they happen to mention that it's a halfman, which is a fade or one of these, uh, you know, one of these black cloaked figures with no eyes that uh, that lead the Trollocs. And through all this, they realize that the windows are barred, so they can't bust out through the windows. They have no way out. Rand starts getting super stressed out. And then all of a sudden, there just happens to be a giant lightning strike right on that building where they're standing. And uh, they basically, like the, I think it, I can't remember if it kills the, the dark friend and his buddies, um, or if it just knocks them out, but... They're able, they have an opening now. They can get through, uh, gosh, I keep doing this. Rand, Matt, Perrin, uh, Rand gets knocked out. He gets knocked unconscious. So now Matt, you know, Rand's kind of been taking care of him and ushering him through this whole time. So at this point, Matt's like, oh shit, I got to get us out of here. So he, he picks up Rand, who's a big fellow. Rand is, is uh, head and shoulders taller than most people who lived in Emmonsfield. So he's having to put this guy over his shoulders. It's pouring down rain outside. They escape. You know, they get out of there and they basically have to go barricade themselves under a bush. And uh, so that's kind of the first. There have been little things up to this point, but that's the first major thing that happens when you realize, hmm, Rand, Rand has probably has magic powers or something. You know, he can he can do cool stuff too. Um. So. Carrying on, you know, they're they're having to take them at this point. After that happens, Rand comes down with this crazy fever. Like, he gets super sick and, uh, you know, weird, dingy little Matt, who's still acting funny, is having to try to carry him and, you know, get him to continue moving towards Camelin so he can get help. Because at this point, he's con concerned that his friend's going to die. He ends up finding them passage in just this cart along this this trade road that was still... Um, you know, this is the path they've been traveling the whole time to get to Camelin. It's called the Camelin Road. And uh, so they find a, a cart that he that he can get loaded up on, and he's really only sick for about 24 hours, and then he kind of comes to and is like, hey, what happened? And uh, somewhere along this road, they... Or no, it's actually in Camelin. Bear with me, guys. There's 14 books. Yeah, no, no, you're <laughs> and, good. I'm, 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 uh, I'm enjoying it, so... Okay, cool. Uh, I don't know how long these episodes are supposed to be, so if I'm talking too much, please, please uh, don't hesitate to derail we, me. We usually try to go for about an hour 15, so there's still a good 15 minutes to work with, roughly. Okay. 
I'll hurry up because we're still in the first book. But you um, just if you just find a stopping, you know, you can just find a stopping point whenever you whenever you see fit because uh we can still talk about the show, which uh <clears throat> a little at little brief episodes of Rage are are a nice thing to include because I know the show was a massive first disappointment. Book, he said. I'm still yeah, in the first the, book, bro. Yeah, oh, that's the God. that's the first book. I thought we were it's like cool because all of the all of the books are like this. There's so many cool things that happen. Like that's why I love this. That's why I love the series. But um, well, I'll I'll hurry up. So they they end up making it to Camelin. They meet up with Tom Marilyn. Um, they uh, Egwene and Perrin end up fleeing the White Cloaks. They end up getting free. Because Rand, or I'm sorry, dang it, I'm doing it again. Lan and Moraine and Nynaeve are able to track where they went. So they have been tracking Egwene and Perrin this whole time. They had to find they had to find their their trail. They were like, oh crap, this is where they went. They've been following them. So they're able to bring Perrin and Egwene free from the White Cloak camp. They were going to execute them because they were like, oh, you guys are obviously dark friends. You kill you killed one of our peoples and you, you know, communicate with wolves. That's that's obviously of the dark one. So they spring them uh, and they end up. Making their way to Camelin. So everybody meets up in Camelin. Uh, Rand and Matt and Tom Marilyn are already there. And then at some point in time, they somehow end up finding uh, Perrin and Egwene. Moraine, Lan, and uh, Nynaeve. So they end up all meeting in Camelin, and uh, they talk about their next, you know, what the next step in their journey is. They Essentially, the, the point of this book is they have to make it to the eye of the world. That's why it's namesake. Woohoo! Name drop. Um, because there's something hidden in this, you know, quote-unquote eye of the world that they need to retrieve. Um, and if they don't, then the, you know, the dark the dark one's going to get it or the servants of the dark one and all things are lost. So essentially that's, it's where they all meet up and they start heading towards the eye of the world, which is actually in the blight. So they end up having to go through, um, through the borderlands, specifically Shinar, which is really cool. They're a bunch of like, I always thought of them as like big Chinese warriors. You know, they have like the top part of their head shaved, but they wear heavy armor and, you know, all the Borderlanders are trained to fight from the time that they're old enough to hold a sword, basically. So they go through Shinar, stop there, meet some more cool people, go to the Blight, and they do this thing. I don't want to, I don't want to, like, spoil the, what happens there. Um, but, you know, they make it through it to the Blight, and then, you know, they have this big fight. You meet some of the Forsaken, which is like the, the, uh, the the big servants of the dark one so the the dark one has named 12 or 13 of his quote unquote chosen people which everybody else calls the forsaken because you know they they did very very bad terrible things back in the age of legends <clears throat> and you get to meet a couple of these forsaken over there you know it comes to a, a confrontation and you know it's I can't I can't say too much more without spoiling it and I don't want to if you if anybody intends to read the book. Uh well, usually uh I mean if you don't want to spoil it that's fine. Uh we we provide spoiler warnings usually. 
Uh, so I mean, if okay. you want to say it, then that's just that's just a plug for the spoiler warning. Okay. Well, <laughs> if if you want to throw one of those spoiler warnings out there, I I can you know tell you some. All right. Well, um, then spo- spoiler warning, just in case. Just in case. Um, basically, uh, doing kind of a long story short again. When they get there, the eye of the world is actually technically like a kind of a parallel dimension, but it's to get there, you have to go to this one particular place in the blight where the where the uh, reality is thinned there, I guess, to get to this eye of the world. And uh, you meet the green man, which is kind of a mythical figure. I uh, won't spend too much time on him, but he guards the eye of the world. Um, when they get there, essentially, there's they come to this... Um, this deep pool it's it's like a a glass a glassy um you ever have has it i don't know if you've ever been in a cave and you've come up to that still water that's like wow i bet that goes down for like miles yeah um it's a hole like that that is just covered with this perfectly blue water and but it it's messed with by the power it's it's basically a holding place and they're able to get into it because Rand is who he is, which is the dragon reborn. Um, spoiler. I mean, you kind of see, it's kind of, it's obvious up until this point, at least for me, it was pretty obvious who he was, but you know, they talk about the dragon reborn. Everybody's terrified of his coming again. Rand is the dragon reborn. You know, he is Luz Theron Kin- Kinslayer reborn. It's, it's the same person. He's just, you know, he's reincarnated as Rand Thor. So they're able to retrieve these items, but as they're leaving, they get attacked by two of the Forsaken. Um, I'm not going to be able to regurgitate their names to you right now, but um, they're the two, two of the, a bunch of the Forsaken were actually imprisoned with the Dark One. These two in particular were imprisoned towards the outside part of his prison, which means time has affected them. And they are like these gnarly looking like zombie motherfuckers like they're just they're terrifying looking they're what you would think a forsaken would look like you know and uh moraine is able to kind of stand toe-to-toe with one of them to an extent he's obviously stronger than than her but she's able to outsmart him she ends up getting getting hurt pretty bad but she's able to neutralize one of them and rand it's almost like this it's almost like it's not happening in reality, but it, it also is. He, he starts fighting with this other one and he's all of a sudden able to use the, the true source. He's able to use the one power and, and through this, through this altercation, through this, uh, this fight, he actually, this whole time he's been having bad dreams about this guy in a dark mask with a, a black mask with burning eyes and like every time he opens his eyes in his mouth, there's just pits of fire, right? So you you figure throughout this that it's it's the dark one that's talking him and taunting him and and haunting him, but uh, it's actually one of the other Forsaken who's kind of masquerading as the dark one. And even though Rand is actually fighting this other, you know, Forsaken, I, I think his name is Arengar. Um, parallel like in the dream world he's actually fighting this other guy who's masquerading as the dark one and that's when he kind of comes to 
the realization, or he's told that you are uh, Luz Theron Kinslayer. You, you are the one. This whole time, this guy has been haunting all three of the boys' dreams, not knowing which one of them was Luz Theron. And whenever this, this altercation happens between him and this other Forsaken, he's like, it's you, and I'm going to kill you. And Rand's like, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm Randall Thor. I'm not, I'm not any Luz Theron Kinslayer. And uh, that happens. There's not really anything that results from, you know, the this parallel altercation between him and this this other Forsaken, this, you know, guy masquerading as the Dark One. Um, but through all this in the real world, he ends up frying this other Forsaken. Like, he kills him outright. Like, there's just cinder left. And uh, after that fight, he goes down and he's freaking out, just kind of wondering if everybody's okay. Uh, Moraine is semi-conscious, and they finally look at the items that they came to retrieve. Some of them are these, uh, they're these black and white discs. So, the, um, the symbol of the Aes Sedai is like a teardrop, a white teardrop. And then what's, uh, associated with, what's become associated with the Dark One is what's called the Dragon's Fang. But those two things together form that yin-yang symbol, right? Mm. And that yin-yang symbol used to be the symbol of Aes Sedai altogether back in the Age of Legends when it was men and women. And once the breaking of the world happened and, you know, men went, men who could channel were basically feared because they were known to be crazy and, and unpredictable and dangerous, that dragon's fang or that, that black piece of it became associated with the dark one. It's like people will draw the dragon's fang on somebody's door who thinks they're evil and, you know, like, it's that's that's more Inquisition stuff coming in there. You know, paranoid people going, oh, that person's evil, I'm going to draw the dragon's fang on their door. And, uh, so anyway, he, he finds a bunch of these little discs that are the original symbol of the Aes Sedai with both that little teardrop and the dragon's fang together. And, uh, there's a intricate white tapestry with this creature that, you know, as they're describing it, it's it's not something obviously the people of this story or time recognize, but it's a dragon. And you learn that it's the banner of the of the dragon, Luz Theron Telamon. That's what he was known as, was the dragon. So through this, between finding these little things, which are actually the seals on the Dark One's prison, and finding this banner of Luz Theron Telamon, that's when Moraine, you know, big reveals like, oh my gosh. You're you're him. You're the Dragon Reborn. This is this is what we found, and this is going to be your banner. Keep it hidden. Keep it safe. Um, and so on. So more stuff happens after that, but essentially that's like the climax of the story. Is this big fight? You know, lots of things going on, and you find out that Randall Thor is the Dragon Reborn. He is in obvious, uh, immediate and obvious denial. You know, because he. Nobody wants to be the Dragon Reborn. That's probably the worst thing you could possibly hear about yourself, because essentially it's prophesied that the Dragon Reborn is going to destroy the world again. So, that's the Charming. first Charming. Well, uh, I think it's safe to say that this is going to be my segue into the TV show. There's a lot of things different than even I was initially told about. Oh, so many things. Uh... <laughs> Neo, do you, you have anything to say? Bro, I'm just listening at this point. 
Um, I hope okay. that wasn't too boring or long-winded. No, no, that's that's fine. That's that's what we wanted. It was a, it's a you-led episode. Uh, so for the last little bit, uh, I don't necessarily know how how actually strongly you feel about it, but the show is very different, and by very different, I mean very terrible, at least according to Dad. Uh, I I agree. <laughs> go. Let, let's just let's, t- let's go ahead and talk about the differences, right? Because I know that I know there's a couple off the top of my head. But uh, we'll just, we'll just keep the you theme going here. Well, it's so I've I've got I I don't like it. You know, I'm just gonna lead with I I was very very disappointed <laughs> with the way that they did the story, just because the feel is like the the feel of the story, the original story is so unique, and I really don't think you need to add anything to it. You don't need to add anything to it. You don't need to change it. I like the personalities of the characters that are already written, and they've they've just immediately right off the bat, like one of the things about the two rivers is they're wholesome folk. They are sturdy, excuse me, they're normal people, but they're just sturdy like gritty farmers like you know they they they'll live through harsh winters and they you know they they'll lose all their crops but they're just going to get back up and rebuild and just keep moving forward the way that they always do right Right. that was beautiful (laughs) um and but they're kind of a wholesome people it's not that they do have fun they do parties and stuff like that but like the way that they did the two rivers made it look like kind of dark and, and like, like they're all like, this is a bunch of degenerates. You know, I just, I didn't like the way that they did that. And for one thing, like Rand and Perrin and Matt are all young. They're like 16 years old. They're not old enough to be married yet, but they're getting there. You know, they're, they're, uh, they're of the age where they're kind of getting to where they can start thinking about like, okay, who would I want to be my betrothed like who who would i want to start courting and in the in the series they just kind of i mean for one they're adults already parents already married i hate that i don't like it at all um i understand why they did it i actually read um i read an article not too long ago that brandon sanderson had uh had quoted for and brandon sanderson helped he he finished the last three books of the series. Brandon, uh, okay. So Robert Robert Jordan died before he could finish the books. He wrote book eleven, and he died shortly after that. So Robert Jordan's wife Harriet, uh, she went to Brandon Sanderson, who is a very well known and excellent writer. If you haven't read any of his stuff, he's awesome. Um, reading these books were what made me go like, holy crap, this guy's a great writer. I'm going to read a bunch of his other stuff. Um, So she went to him and said, hey, I have all of his notes. Like, he had everything written down on what he wanted to do. I just need you to put it in a book. Like, I need I need you to, to make this story, finish it, you know. And uh, so Brandon Sanderson had been a an avid fan of the series since it first came out in 1980 something i can't remember what you said i should know this but um 84 was when the first book was written 1984 thank you so brandon sanderson has been following this series like he waited for every single book to come out and you know waited with bated breath so he was pumped to do this 
And I'm going to tell you what, Brandon Sanderson did a badass job. Like, I mean, Matt is one of my favorite characters. Like, he's just fun. And, of course, this is a character that Robert Jordan wrote and created. But Brandon Sanderson's version of Matt was even better than Robert Jordan's version of Matt, in my opinion. Um, that's just a little sidebar. But so Brandon Sanderson was kind of a they, they consulted him on the making of this. And uh, they kind of had to do something for Perrin, you know, because they couldn't. So Perrin is kind of like a, a haunted character. You know, he's he's supposed to he's very solemn and they wanted to put that piece in there. Bef you know, long before it actually happens in the book, you know, it, it's some it, it's it's the point where Perrin kills the white cloak without meaning to where he just really kind of starts to get haunted, you know. So they wanted to put that that little element in there sooner rather than later. And so what the director wanted to do was give him a wife. He kills his wife on accident. Brandon Sanderson, like, vehemently disagreed. He was like, I don't like that. Like, I totally understand what you're trying to do, but you should make it like his master, like Master Luhan. So, like, he's he was an apprentice blacksmith, and he was working under a master, uh, Luhan and, and his wife, Alsbet Luhan. And uh, those characters aren't even there. They're they're such cool characters, and they and they're there later on in the in the series, all the way up to the last book. They don't even put them in there, and they just went straight to like him killing his wife versus like him accidentally killing his his master, thinking that he was a trollic or something like that. I probably would have appreciated that better. So that was the right. first thing that I didn't like. But you know, c continuing on and reading this article, you know. I have a little bit more of a, um, I guess, a different perspective on it. I still don't like it, but, you know, the way that Brandon Sanderson was looking at it is, you know, the wheel of time is always turning, you know, and it's like, what's the word I'm looking for? Reincarnation is a big thing, and these stories happen over and over again. Basically, with the same people, the story might be, be a little bit different. But, you know, the, the wheel of time is something, it's a cycle that continues on, right? So right. Brandon Sanderson kind of put it in those terms. You like, that's, it's not the same as the book or as the books, you know, it's not the same as the original story. But the way that I'm looking at it is this is, this is what's happening the next go around when it comes back to these characters again, you know? So I was like, okay, I can, I can put a little bit of forgiveness in there for that, but you know, I, I just, I couldn't get on board with that. Um, I couldn't get on board with the whole, like, the Dragon Reborn is whoever he or she is. Like, no, the Dragon Reborn is going to be a man because he has to be able to access Sidene. Like, that's the male half of the true source. And in the book, it's pretty obvious that, like, it's one of these three boys. It's not one of these three boys and these two chicks over here. <clears throat> they're just kind of tag tagging along, but they also play an important role just in very different ways. I know, uh, uh, I know one of the, uh, the differences that, that dad, that dad's pretty adamant about is, uh, they kind of almost switch Matt and Rand's personalities. They did. Uh, there's a, really the bit did. when, when they're in the bar, right? They're, they're getting the in. And in the show, the innkeep is a woman, and she, like, accuses them of, of like, being gay or something, you know, so it makes a crack about them being gay. And she's talking to Rand, 
And Rand mm-hmm. says, if I wanted a man, I could do a lot better than that, you know? Yeah. And like that, and that's, that's like a Matt line, apparently. That's like something yeah. Matt would say. Rand is like a quiet, stoic dude, you know? He doesn't really crack jokes. Uh, that's a Matt thing. Yeah. They, they really did not do his, like, uh, Matt's character justice. Because the thing is, they, it's like they wanted to put the dark brooding thing in there early. But Matt didn't become any sort of dark and brooding until after he got this dagger. Like, that was supposed, there was supposed to be this dichotomy of, like, happy, silly, goofy, you know, can't be serious about anything Matt the way he normally is. And then once he gets a hold of this dagger, he turns into a completely different person because it's start like it. They, they also like, as far as I know in the show, he's got like two sisters, young sisters, some relative and his parents are like worthless. Right. And he's like in the position of trying to keep them fed and clothed. So he gambles and steals, you know, and he's like trying to yeah. take care of them and he's like constantly stressed out and then plays it off as though he isn't with the occasional joke that he doesn't make as often as he should. Yeah, it's I just I really don't like that. I don't think they needed to do that because the thing is in the books, Abel Cawthon, which is Matt, uh, Matt's dad, is I mean, he's he's also kind of known as a little bit of a troublemaker, but not like crazy, not not like you know, like, oh, watch out for that guy, but he's supposed to have, like, a sharp mind, he's supposed to be one of the best uh, bow staff fighters in the area, or uh, quarter staff fighters, and um, he's got an eye for horses, which is where Matt gets all these skills that you learn that he has later on, like, his his family, <laughs> their stand-up family, just like basically everybody else in the Two Rivers is minus two families, there's, like, the Congars and the Coplins that are supposed to be the, like, oh, don't, you know, they're they're just making, you know, Copland gossip talk. They're just trying to stir up trouble. Like, they're all, but essentially the quote-unquote degenerates of the area is supposed to be, you know, minimized to these couple families. Everybody else is just stand-up, hard-working people, you know? So I I really didn't like how, I didn't like how they did that. I wasn't, I wasn't a fan of, of them basically making Matt's backstory like a, you know, troubled family thing because it's just not supposed to be there. The way that they, the way that Robert Jordan developed his character in the book, there's supposed to be an obvious difference between who he was before and who he is after he has this knife. So, right. <clears throat> um, didn't like it. Yeah, there's a few differences, but uh, we're actually running a little short on time. We might need to save some of this for a part two. Okay. Uh, do whatever you want to do. Yeah, I think we'll I think we'll go ahead and save this side for a part two. I have no idea when we'll do that, but uh, maybe soon. Uh, I don't like dating the episodes necessarily. In the future. Yeah, in the future. Uh, in the fourteen-part series of of this one for each book. <laughs> hey, man. I mean, I wouldn't mind doing that, but I feel like people. I'd rather people just just read the books, guys. It's, oh. it's a really good story. <laughs> that wouldn't, I, I don't know if that'd work out very well, because my intention is for season one of this podcast to be about 13 or 14 episodes, and this is episode eight, I believe. <laughs> There's not ah. enough time to do that in one season. Yeah, that's okay. That's okay. Yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll get, season, we'll do another episode for, for uh, Wheel of Time. We'll, we'll most likely get into it again. 
But uh, Melinda, it's been a pleasure having you. Um, it's been a pleasure coming. being here. Good. Uh, Neo, do you have any concluding notes? It sounds like an interesting story, but I don't read. I don't know how to read, so... I yeah. I bought you a Lovecraft book at your request. Yeah, I know. I've been reading Mountains of Madness. <laughs> yeah, no Mountains of Madness is wreck. Anyway, um... No, I've got two words for you. Audio book. I don't know how it's to listen. That much we'll, is we'll true. We'll work on it. We'll uh, work on it. All right, well, uh, go ahead and subscribe to our socials, Jobo Radio at Twitter, Reddit, and Instagram. Uh, you can check And Facebook. I always forget about Facebook. Uh, you can check out uh, Neo on Twitch, Just Phoenix 101, as well as myself, Frosty Butcher on Twitch. Uh, Melinda, you can find at a bank. <clears throat> I, don't, I, don't think you have any, I don't think you have any social plugs to include, but... I mean, you can, find, you can try to find me on Facebook, but... I mean, I'm not very interesting, so... Hopefully soon there will be a plug that I would absolutely love to share, but I'm not going to mention that on the podcast yet. Don't face uh, the listeners. Yeah. Stay uh, tuned. Stay, yeah, stay, stay tuned. Stay tuned. New, news and information. I was going to try to make an interesting uh, segue, but I couldn't. Anyway, that is enough for the Sunday episode, and we will see you all next week. Peace. Bye.